Coming up on today's show, five areas where Canada needs to step up in the war on Ukraine. There are things we could do and do better. We'll talk about exactly what they are. Parliament needs to step up if they really want to fix the Canadian Armed Forces' broken culture. We'll talk about that and some of the defence announcements in the recent budget. And speaking of budgets, Bank of Canada expected to announce an oversized rate hike this week. Oversized? Yeah, half a percent at least. We've all seen the pictures. We've all seen the videos, the evidence that has come out of places like Bucha in Ukraine, where we know that um, what seem to be obvious war crimes and atrocities have been committed. And it just, it really lit a fire under a lot of people, I think, when we saw the evidence of, of what had happened in some of these occupied communities and cities and towns, and we've seen the bombing of hospitals and schools and and all the rest. So um, a lot of the questions, we're not waiting for answers. Some we are, but we already have a lot of answers that um, it's awful. And can Canada do more? Should Canada do more? Um, We're going to have a discussion now about that very topic with Marta Ditchuk, who is an associate professor of history and political science specializing in Ukraine at Western University. Marta, thank you for joining us once again. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Um, Now, when we get into this discussion, uh, we're referencing a piece you wrote for uh, theconversation.com, but I Mm -hmm. I just want to talk a bit about... your 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 position on this, of course, this is, is your your area of study. But you've actually you you've you've spoken on this to government officials, people investigating what Canada should be doing, right? I mean, you have it's not an official role, but you are an advisor to government in some capacity. Well, I was simply asked to appear before the Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs and International Development as one of the expert witnesses to provide information on what's happening and recommendations. So when we take a look at where we are, and I, you know this has been going on for I think it's 50 days now, uh, something like yeah. that. Um, mm-hmm. how, how has Canada um, stepped up to this point? What would you say we've done well? What do we need to do better? I mean, just sort of, if you had to put a grade on what Canada has done in the last 50 days, what would you say? Well, I'm going to quote Ukraine's President Zelensky, who says repeatedly, thank you for everything you're doing, but we need more help. And I think that's it in a nutshell, that Ukraine cannot win this war on its own. Ukraine is far smaller than Russia. And a lot of countries, including Canada, are saying, you guys are doing a great job, keep it up. But Ukrainians keep saying, we need more help. And that help is forthcoming very slowly. It could be much stronger, much faster. How could it be? Let's talk about it. You, you point out five key areas where you think Canada could be doing more. Let's just walk through them. Uh, the first one is diplomacy. What do you mean when you say Canada could do a better job in the diplomacy front with this? Well, Canada is the first Western country to have recognized Ukraine's independence 30 years ago. And there's this narrative that Canada-Ukraine have a special relationship. But... Has any Canadian official been to Ukraine since this all started? No. We saw this week British Prime Minister Boris Johnson got on a train and he went to Kyiv mm-hmm. and he met with President Zelensky and they walked around down central Kyiv. The uh, European Union, uh, the European Commission, they have reopened their diplomatic representation in Kyiv. Lithuania has op- reopened their embassy. Uh, what is Canada doing? What well, what should we do? I mean, should we be doing this? Should Trudeau arrive in Ukraine, or uh, you know, should we have more I people think, there? Or? 
that would be an incredible sign of support for mm-hmm. Ukraine. Um, they're constantly saying, please help us. And other leaders are visiting. Um, the president of the European Parliament went to Ukraine yeah. and met with President Zelensky. That is such an important sign of support. And Canada says, we are your friend. Well, perhaps that could be demonstrated on a diplomatic level. Second thing they could be doing on the diplomatic level, they being Canadian government, they could be taking a stronger position on the diplomatic representatives from Russia who are in Canada, who remain in Canada. Many countries have expelled a lot of Russian diplomats. Now, diplomatic relations need to remain open because that's how you negotiate. But there's no need to have all of them still here. I was at a rally in downtown Toronto on Sunday where Ukraine's consul uh, general said, why is the Russian consulate in Toronto still open? Why are they all still living here, sipping lattes and going for walks in the park when their government is killing Ukrainians? They should be asked to leave. They should be made not welcome in Canada. And that has happened, as you say, in many other Western nations. Absolutely. They've downscaled their diplomatic representations. You don't need the cultural attaché. You don't need all of these people right. here. Yeah. Um, okay. The other one, and I think this is one that we've heard a lot of talk around from our leaders, including Trudeau, talking about increasing defense spending and, and all the rest, being more of an assistance in terms of military support. Um, it seems like there's been a lot of talk. How much action has been done there? Well, Canada has been supplying Ukraine with training, with arms throughout this eight-year war. So it's not like Canada hasn't done anything. But again, they need to be doing more. I mean, President Zelensky said to the NATO countries, just give us 1% of what you have. That will help us. 1% of NATO's capacity, they could easily just transfer all of that. Right. And, I mean, we don't know exactly how much is being transferred. We just hear what the announcements are. But the Ukrainians are constantly saying, please give us more. And we're seeing the evidence. I mean, we all watch the the bombing and the destruction. Um, Ukrainians need more defensive weapons. No question about that. Yeah. I know we talk a lot about economic sanctions. That's a big push. Has been for a long, long time and, uh, you know, unprecedented. We've never seen anything like it. Um, Is there more that can be done there in terms of what we're doing to inflict economic pain on Russia? Absolutely. There are still a lot of Russian businessmen living comfortably in Canada and making money. And there are Russian ships that are coming to Canada. Uh, Again, Ukraine is saying, please stop these economic relations. Russia needs to be economically isolated, because as long as it keeps making money in Canada and U.S. and other countries, it can continue perpetrating war against Ukraine. And then, of course, there's talk we're going to try and, you know, relieve some of the energy dependence in Europe, but that's going to be small uh, and that's going to take time. But that's another area where we're talking about doing more. Absolutely. I mean, here where Trudeau actually did make a good statement that Canada can increase its production of oil and sell it to partners in Europe to help them relieve their dependency on Russian supplies, but also in the long term, because we need to be thinking just short, medium and long term here. Um, if all countries move towards renewable energy, then Russia's capacity to make money internationally will be completely reduced. Because if we're switching to green energy, we're not going to need to buy their gas anymore. Right, yeah. Um, 
Marta, I know there's a story Global News has today, uh, a number of uh, people from Afghanistan that we were supposed to be helping as refugees and bringing to this country say they feel like they've been forgotten and abandoned. Uh, we did the same thing with um, Ukraine in terms of offering, you know, visas and all the rest of that. Uh, you're working with some people, you're in touch with people in Ukraine. How are we doing on that front? Has Canada managed to actually walk the walk this time? Well, <laughs> let's compare what Canada's doing and what Poland is doing. When this started, Poland opened its borders and said, anybody who needs to flee from the war, come and we will help you. Yeah. So millions and millions of people are currently in Poland. The Polish government, which is far less wealthy than the Canadian government, is helping millions of Ukrainians. What has Canada done? We're going to take 100,000. Right. How long will that even take? That's the other question, right? I mean, how quickly are we making this happen? Well, precisely. I mean, first of all, the doors need to be opened yeah. much more widely, and resources need to be put to actually help people. And the package that Canada opened to people coming from Ukraine didn't include health care. So people fleeing for more, some of them will be injured, some of them will need health care. That's not part of the package. Now, Ontario's government uh, just recently said that health care will be provided to everybody who comes to Ontario. But that needs to be done on a national level. It needs to be to everybody who's coming. Um, last one, and I think this one's really interesting to me specifically, and I'm sure most people mm. do, is information. <laughs> information, yes. I mean, We talk about that, and yes. we know that this whole disinformation effort is very effective in some areas. How can Canada, I mean, we can't handle disinformation in our own country. How can we wade into this international conflict in terms of information and be a service there? Well, it's not that difficult. It's up to journalists like yourself and all journalists to just, Think about what you're saying and what you're doing and listen to the rhetoric that's coming out of Moscow and respond critically. So is this the Ukraine crisis or is this Russia's invasion of Ukraine? It's just about using the accurate words to describe what is happening. Just the terminology. You're right. I mean, the way you (laughs) present it makes a big difference, right? Absolutely. So alleged war crimes in Bucha. Well, We've all seen those pictures. So yeah. where's the alleged? <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. I, fair, you know, I mean... <laughs> I mean, this is something that all journalists should be doing. And journalists in Ukraine are appealing to international journalists and saying, look at what's happening and report accurately. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, uh, to to defend media, which is, I think, is a response for me as a guy who's been in media. So I think, I, you know, there are we've mobilized a lot of for, we've got a lot of people on the ground there that are covering this story. I think we're seeing this this conflict unlike we've ever seen a conflict before. You know what I mean? Absolutely. We're seeing it in real time. Yeah. Yeah. Which is precisely why it shouldn't be so hard to get it right, because there are so many journalists on the ground. And I have to say there has been a shift in the reporting since all the journalists went to Ukraine are seeing with their own eyes are talking to Ukrainians yeah. and giving voice to people, both government officials and ordinary people. So that narrative is shifting, but I still occasionally hear the Ukraine crisis. And I think, oh my God, who's still calling it the Ukraine crisis? Yeah, you, you, <laughs> you, you, it, Russia's invasion of Ukraine or Russia's war against Ukraine is, isn't the more accurate terminology you're saying? Well, precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. That's what's happening. 
because if somebody says the Ukraine crisis, it makes it sound like Ukraine's causing a crisis. Going back to last week, and you probably remember this, it was big news. Um, the case against Jonathan Vance, who was Canada's chief of defense staff at one point in time, uh, it ended a couple of weeks ago. And, and despite all of the outrage and uh, the promises to fix the broken culture that were sort of focused on this case and, and others, there's definitely more, but this was one of the, probably the biggest one, chief of defense staff, right? Um, the judge decided to grant him a conditional discharge. So he doesn't have a criminal record. He's got to do some community service. And and a lot of people following that were like, well, we talk about the culture of the armed forces and needs a reset. This is kind of what we mean. So we're going to chat now with uh, Stephen Sademan. Stephen is the Patterson Chair in the International Affairs at Carleton University. Uh, Stephen, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Shane. You know, like I say, this case, um, of course, grabbed a lot of headlines, being the chief of defense, but uh, there's a whole bunch of them, and that's sort of what led to this whole discussion around culture, at least the most recent iteration of it. It's been around for a while, but, I mean, we just had case after case after case, right? Yes, well, it's it's been a long, long time coming because uh, the, the Vance's biggest failure might not have been his own behavior, but is that he didn't really implement the... Uh, the recommendations of the Deschamps report that was in 2015, a retired Supreme Court justice had gone through the previous record. And so we've now gone through many cycles of this where we have recommendations, the military doesn't implement them, and then we do this all over again. So what's the problem here? What are we doing wrong? Like you say, this report, and we've had a report kicking around seven, eight years now, Mm -hmm. telling us what we needed to do. We didn't do a lot of it. We didn't do any of it in some cases. Um, Where do we keep falling down on this? What needs to change so we can actually make progress here? It's got to require a lot of different uh, things. It's not a one-fix uh, uh, problem. But one of the things we need to do, and I think we're now in better shape, is we need to have a defense minister who's serious about this. So under Harjit Saijan, he pretty much signed off on whatever Vance was doing. Uh, I don't think Anita Anand is going to do the same thing. I think she's going to take this much more seriously. So I think that's part of it. I think that Parliament needs to take more seriously what its role is uh, in overseeing the military as opposed to just uh, point scoring with a four against the the party that's in power. Um, I think there needs to be institutional changes, which are going on right now within the, the Canadian Armed Forces. But fundamentally, it comes down to the, the military has to do what the civilians tell them to do, and they haven't been doing it. Um, tell me more about Parliament. Like, Ed, when we take a look at how we do things in this country versus other countries around the world, what are the differences? Like, what, like you say, there's always politics at play with this, right? I mean, just teeing off on the defense minister over and over and over, bringing down the defense minister, that seemed to be the focus uh, of a lot of our politicians. That's right. And the thing is, and there's politics in every, every country's sure. uh, defense uh, situation. But in Canada, when you ask the parliamentarians uh, what their role is, they say our job is not to oversee the military. Their job is to hold the minister to account. And that means mostly their focus last year was on you know, focused on Saijan, focused on Trudeau, and they didn't really ask questions like, hey, John Vance was accused of doing this stuff. Why was he also able to put, uh, as chief of personnel, a man who had been accused of rape? Um, how, how does this work in our system where the chief defense staff gets to pick whoever he wants, and where is the oversight coming from the minister's office? And they weren't asking questions like that. They were really just focused on trying to tie it to Trudeau. Um, in other countries, uh, the defense minister, the defense committee has security clearances, so they can, they can meet behind closed doors with the minister of defense, ask questions about what's going on. Um, they might actually have some power to affect the budget, which means that they're irrelevant. One of the challenges in Canada is that the Defense Committee can't really do anything if they find anything out. They can't 
change uh, legislation very easily because uh, the, the agenda is strictly controlled by the government of power. Uh, they can't move money around because the budget is just a yes or no decision. Uh, so other countries, have the, the defense companies have more tools that make the military care what about what they're doing. Uh, that when I was in the Pentagon on a fellowship 20 years ago, I never saw officers more nervous than when they were about to testify before Congress, because Congress really mattered. And I, I, I don't think John Vance was ever scared or concerned about, you know, appearing before Parliament and being asked tough questions. So with all these reports and all these investigations and all this talk we've had about reforming the armed forces and changing the culture and all, has that ever been brought up? Has that ever been a part of the conversation of we need to change the way we have oversight and enforcement and all these sorts of things that you're talking about? Is that part of the process? Has that been a recommendation? Uh, it has not been a recommendation by by the previous Supreme Court justices who've been asked to review the military. Uh, it has come up in the academic side of things and yeah. in the think tanks where we talk about this sort of stuff. Uh, Phil Lagasse, one of my colleagues, has wrote a, a really good piece on accountability, uh, I don't know, four or five, six years ago, uh, that was widely circulated. Uh, so the academics talk about this, but it hasn't really been a major focus. When I, I had a chance to talk to Paul Martin when I was uh, working on a book about 15 years ago, and he said, don't compare us to the United States compare us to Australia and New Zealand. And, and that's one of the challenges for all Canadian public policies. We, we say, hey, the United States does things differently. We're better than them. And that's the end of the conversation. If you go to Australia and New Zealand and the UK, which is what we did for our project, we find that, that their parliamentarians have realized that uh, just leaving civilian control of the military in the hands of one person, the Minister of Defense, is a problem. Whether they're good at it or bad at it, it's just one person. And so those uh, those democracies that are most similar to us actually have parliamentarians who've taken seriously their role and have developed powers and interests and expertise so that way they can hold their military's feet to the fire and ask tough questions and, and get decent answers. Um. Do you have any faith that that might happen here? Like, 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 as you say, we've been talking about this. We had the Supreme Court Justice Report back in 2015. We have another one underway now. I mean, we, we do these reports, these recommendations, but nothing seems to go anywhere. Do you have any faith that it will this time around? Uh, I have faith that many of the changes that are being discussed are going to be taken seriously because there is a sort of a, a generational change in the yeah. Canadian Armed Forces. We do have a much better Minister of National Defense than we had previously. Uh, I think having a, a law professor who specializes in corporate governance as the Minister of National Defense at this moment in time is actually uh, a pretty fortunate thing. Um, so I think that those changes will take place. I think I think there will be some things that make a difference, but um, I worry about the lower-level ranks, the medium-level ranks pushing back, uh, waiting for this to blow over. And I worry that Parliament is just going to chase the next thing and not really follow up on this too carefully. Hey, while I've got you, I was wondering if I could ask you about the budget last week and um, sure. some of the things that were announced there. Specifically, I guess, the fact that we're going to conduct this review. Now, to me, at first, it's kind of like a review. I mean, we've got a lot of things going on. But, but these reviews aren't uncommon. They're typically done by countries when they take a look at, you know, they, they, they serve an important role, right? Yeah, well, most of our friends in other democracies do this every three or four years. Uh, the United States has a quadrennial review, and it forces the military and the folks overseeing the military to develop sort of a 
a set of standards for, okay, here's what we're expecting to do. How, do, how well did we do in the last one? And what do we need to change? And so it provides a good benchmark for change, and it provides a good justification for our next decisions. And, and so the strong, secure, and engaged document that came out of the last defense review has been, as Anand uh, uh, put it to my class, a, good, a backbone for defense policy. Well, t- things have changed uh, since 2017, and so we need to see how well we met the goals of that document, and then uh, look at the military and see what they need to change in light of what's gone in Ukraine, uh, what happened in Afghanistan, what we're doing in Iraq and Latvia, you know, how well are these things going, and what do we need to to do better. And that means looking at you know, our retention and re- recruitment crisis, because we're 7,000, 8,000 troops under what our goals, and that's partly due to the pandemic, but not entirely. Um, it means looking at longer-term decisions besides the F-35, but, you know, what is the impact of modernizing the Northern Warning System is going to do on the rest of the military budget? How are we going to pay for all this stuff? So there's a lot of questions we need to ask uh, to sort of set uh, the, the guideposts, the, the signposts for the next four to ten years. Um, what about timing? I mean, if you take a look yeah. at our armed forces with, with everything that's going on, as you say, and not the least of which, of course, is the situation in Ukraine and what's happening there and, you know, our involvement with NATO and uh, you mentioned Afghanistan. I mean, it's a busy time for the Canadian Armed Forces conducting a review. I mean, it has to be done. I get that. But is the timing a problem? Well, we can never pick our, uh, the right time to do one of these things. There's always something happening. Obviously, right now, it's a very, very busy time with dealing with Ukraine. And one of the challenges, one reason to have regular reviews is to actually have people dedicated to that proposition in the minister's office or in the Department of National Defense that, that this is their day job. This is what they do all, all the time is to prepare for the next review and, and, and to interpret the last review. And we have a, a director within uh, D&D, the AD, what's called a Associate Deputy Minister of Policy, which has this role, but maybe they need more people. And one of the challenges we've had is that politicians like to rail against having bureaucrats a lot. We, we need to cut the bureaucrats. Yeah. Well, the bureaucrats do stuff, you know, <laughs> and in, in, in two cases, this is very, very important right now. It's, it's doing these reviews and having a good assessment of where we're going. And the other thing which people don't really talk about too much is when we talk about spending more on the budget, well, people have got to spend the money. Who's spending the money? We need to have people who are really proficient at putting together bids, signing contracts, monitoring the contracts. And in the past, those people were gutted because it was easy for politicians to say, well, we're cutting spending by getting rid of these bureaucrats. But they do something. And it's not just Canada that's dealing with inflation. We know Canada's inflation rate is almost 6%. Uh, we know Bank of Canada is going to take steps and increase interest rates. I mean, you take a look at what's happening in the United States, though. In terms of inflation in the United States, the numbers came out this morning, and they're higher than it has been since 1981, the inflation rate in the U.S. In 40 years Plus, we haven't seen inflation like this in the U.S., uh, certainly higher than it is in Canada, but Canada has its own issues of 5.7%. So Bank of Canada is set to take action. To tell us what we might expect to see and what's in our future, we're going to chat with Josh Nye, who's a Royal Bank of Canada senior economist. Uh, Josh, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, happy to. So when we take a look at this, the announcement coming tomorrow, I think most people are expecting a half a percentage increase tomorrow, which would be the biggest increase we've seen in a while, right? Yeah, yeah. so a rate increase is universally expected at tomorrow's meeting. The, the question, as you said, is whether it's going to be a standard quarter point uh, rate hike, which is what we saw in March, or a larger half percent increase, which is something we haven't seen from the Bank of Canada in, in two decades. Um, we're actually expecting that it will be that larger half percent 
rate hike. Um, and consensus is actually um, leaning in that direction as well, although I'd say there's still a reasonable chance that we only see uh, a quarter point rate hike. We're also expecting the Bank of Canada will begin quantitative tightening, so starting to shrink its balance sheet and reverse some of the quantitative easing that it has done over the past couple of years. Um, that's also going to have an effect on the interest rate environment. It's going to reinforce these policy rate increases, but it's really those policy rate hikes that will be most impactful for Canadians, and I think that's going to be the real story tomorrow. Um, just walk us through how this is meant to tackle inflation. Basically, it just removes money, right? It slows down the economy. It's, 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 it's a sort of a breaking mechanism, right? Yeah, so the, the goal really is to, to keep Canada's economy from overheating or overheating um, even further and, and to get inflation back down toward 2%. Um, you mentioned there that you know this this inflation issue is something that a number of economies are experiencing yeah. globally, um, and some so some of those those current drivers of inflation like rising food and energy prices. I mean, those were really key in that U.S. inflation report uh, that you mentioned this morning. You know, those are, are global issues, and, and they're somewhat beyond the central bank's control. So the Bank of Canada is focusing on what it can control, which is the broad level of aggregate demand in. Canada's economy. And so it needs to be forward-looking and ensure that growth is um, more sustainable going forward. And as some of these supply-side issues like supply chain pressures and and rising commodity prices, as those um, begin to resolve, the Bank of Canada wants to ensure that demand is in a place where we're not going to have sustained upward pressure on prices. And so to do so, um, it needs to get monetary policy back to a more neutral setting. So, so Josh, when we take a look at this, you know, a big hike uh, expected tomorrow, bigger than we've seen in some time. But that's certainly not the end, right? It's anticipated that we'll continue to see hikes like that for the next little while at least, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Bank of Canada has, has told Canadians that they should expect a series of rate hikes and, and a rising path for interest rates. And so following tomorrow's meeting, I, I think another 50 basis point hike may very well be on the table in June. We're not expecting the bank will continue with, with such large moves. We're looking for them um, to go back to those more standard uh, uh, quarter point rate hikes um, over the next several meetings. I think they'll, they'll be hiking at, at probably every meeting until October um, is our assumption when they'll get that policy rate up to around 2% from uh, a half percent today. And that 2% is um, a much more neutral policy rate, much less um, stimulative. And, and we think the Bank of Canada is going to pause and, and reassess at that point and, and be looking ahead to 2023, seeing um, more moderate growth uh, on the horizon and, and starting to see uh, inflation come down from the very high rates that we're seeing right now. And so ultimately, we're not expecting further rate increases in 2023, but the market um, is looking for, for the Bank of Canada to go even further, and um, certainly that's a risk. Yeah, exactly. So uh, be warned, right? I mean, it's been it's been talked about for some time. You shouldn't be caught off guard at this point, Josh. Yeah, I mean, the Bank of Canada has, has I think, um, done a good job communicating yeah. to Canadians yeah. that um, they should expect uh, interest rates to rise. And, you know, that rhetoric has already started to put upward pressure on on things like mortgage rates. I think anyone who's been shopping for a home recently has seen, um, you know, those mortgage rates um, start to rise, and that's going to have an impact on, on the housing market in the coming months. Josh, great insight. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. 
Thanks for the invitation. You bet. That's Josh Nye, who is the Royal Bank of Canada senior economist. So there you go. Uh, you can expect, and I think that's, you know, and everybody we've talked to over the past couple of weeks here, a, a half percentage increase from Bank of Canada tomorrow. Uh, that should be your expectation. And that's just the first. Well, not the first. Actually, there was one last month. Um, but you'll continue to see more and more interest rate increases uh, as uh, Bank of Canada tries to get a handle on inflation. As I said, inflation in Canada, the last numbers we got, 5.7%. The sweet spot where the Bank of Canada wants our economy to be at in terms of inflation is 2%. That's their goal. That's where they want to be. So they got some work to do to bring it that down from 5.7 to uh, roughly 2. Now, take, I was talking about the U.S. Here's some more details on what's going on in the United States. This, uh, it's bad here. There's no doubt. I'm not going to downplay the fact that 5.7% inflation and the cost of you know food and gas and everything else is definitely having an impact on Canadians. In the U.S. right now, inflation, the consumer price index, it's called, jumped 8.5% in March. That's year over year. So from March of 2022 to March of 2021, up 8.5%. That is the biggest year over year increase since December of 1981. Going back more than 40 years, prices uh, being driven up, as you heard Josh talking about, bottleneck supply chains, uh, consumer demand as we come out of the pandemic, uh, Russia's war against Ukraine, disruptions to global food and energy markets worsened by that. So there's all kinds of pressures right now. Um, And it's gone up just month to month from February to March. It's gone up 1.2%. Month to month. They want 2% annually as a comfortable rate of inflation. 1.2% month to month. Now, part of the reason this one is so much higher, uh, this is the first time it's capturing the full surge in gasoline prices following the situation in Ukraine, okay? Um, Price of gas, according to the AAA, uh, average price of a gallon of gas is $4.10, which is up 43% from a year ago. And it's come down. In the past couple of weeks, it was higher than that. Average price in the U.S., $4.10, which is up 43% from just one year ago. So if misery loves company, uh, we've got that going for us. We know cost of living is an issue, but um, we're not alone.